Well, hey, welcome to Center Church. Whether you are in the room or online, we're really, really glad that you're here. And I want to start off today by commemorating two holidays that have occurred over this weekend. I want to start by commemorating yesterday, which was Juneteenth, a new federally established holiday that uh, commemorates the abolishment of slavery following the Civil War. And I also want to take time to commemorate Father's Day, which is today, this Sunday, where we take time to recognize and rejoice in the blessing of godly uh, fathers in our lives. And these are very different holidays, right? And you might think they're, they're not really connected. But for a Christian, uh, really they are connected. A Christian should care about both of these holidays because when we look at God's word, we see that God cares about both of these things. That God has a will for justice in the world and God has a will for fatherhood in the world. And so as Christians, these are two things that we should pursue together. So what I want to do is I just want to tell you how grateful I am for the many godly, amazing dads that we have in our church. In fact, if you're a dad in our church, would you just stand up so we can thank God for you? Come on, get up here. We are so grateful. Thank you. You guys can take a seat. We are so grateful to have many men in our church who model what it looks like to lay down their lives, to serve their families, to raise their children in the training and instruction of the Lord. I'm grateful that we have young men that want to be dads one day, that, man, fatherhood is something that we honor and that we aspire to here. Man, I also am really grateful for the many people in our church who are passionate about pursuing biblical justice in the world. I'm passionate that we have people in our church who are engaged in our community, who are engaged with their hands, who are engaged with their hearts, who are engaged with their prayers. I'm grateful that we get to be engaged in our community this week through Serve the City. I'm grateful that our church is not just a church, man, that gathers together in ivory towers, but it's a church that goes out and does things, okay? So I'm grateful for you, but, but here's what we know. Man, we have a lot of room to grow in both of these areas, right? So anywhere that we find the will of God, we want to pursue it as much as we possibly can. We never want to say, man, I'm a good enough dad, like, I've arrived, I'm a sufficiently good dad, or I care enough about justice, or I care not enough about love, or patience, or whatever. When we find the will of God, we want to pursue the will of God with absolutely all that we are. And my prayer is that we as a church would never be satisfied with where we are in any one of these aspects. But we'd always be asking the question, man, how can we pursue God's design for fatherhood more, more faithfully? How can we pursue God's heart for justice in the world more faithfully? How can we pursue God's design for every area of our lives more faithfully? And so before we jump into Mark chapter 3, I just want to invite you to Join me in praying and asking God that he would help us do that. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that we find in your word and that we're sanctified and we're changed by your truth. And in your word, we find your care and concern for biblical justice. We also find your care and concern for biblical fatherhood. And I pray, God, I thank you for the, for the ways that we see that being lived out in our church right now. But I also ask for additional grace and for the, the pouring out of your spirit that we would be a church that is never satisfied with some area of godliness in our midst, but is always saying, man, how can we become more like Christ in this area? God, so give us grace to do that. Give us wisdom to know how to do that practically. And God, as we look at Mark chapter 3, would you give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to believe what you have to say to us? We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, you can type to or turn to Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Last week, Forrest did an amazing job, if you were here, preaching Mark chapter 4. We wanted him to get to preach that one, partly because Jesus interprets it for us, so you can't really go wrong there, but also because Forrest is an excellent example of Mark chapter 4. He is a man who faithfully sows the Word of God. There are people in our church today who he has led to Christ since being here, so I wanted you to get to hear from Forrest because he's such a great example of that in our church. But we're jumping back to Mark chapter 3, and then after this, we'll be back online, so if you're very confused at where we are, that is what is happening happening. All right, and to uh, set up Mark chapter 3, let me tell you a little bit about my background. I grew up 
going to church, okay, maybe like some of you. And so on most Sundays, you could find me sitting in a pew, annoying my sister and eating strawberry hard candies, okay? Any strawberry hard candy fans out there? Every good church lady had strawberry hard candies in her purse, did they not, right? So if you need something to aspire to in life, there you go. Go get some strawberry hard candies. Um, but I, I made a mistake that a lot of people make, which is this. I assumed that because I was around the, pe- around the people of God, I was part of the people of God. I assumed that because I was around church and I was around Christians, I was a Christian, but that isn't true. I didn't actually become a Christian until I was a middle schooler because as one pastor put it, uh, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than putting your head in an oven makes you a biscuit. Okay, you gotta love pastors, right? I was around the people of God, but I was not a member of the people of God until I was 13 years old when the Holy Spirit started to convict me personally of my sin. And I realized that I was not a good guy on God's team. I was a sinner who was in need of a savior. And I repented and I placed my faith in Christ as my savior and my Lord. And in that moment, everything changed for me. Because what happened? I went from being outside of the people of God to being inside of the people of God. If you're a Christian here today, that same thing has happened for you. There is a point at which you were not in the people of God. And now through repentance and faith, you are. Because what the scriptures teach us is you cannot be born as a Christian. You must be born again as a Christian. But here's the thing, the the Bible says that being a part of the people of God should be the most important thing about us. It should be the bedrock of our identity. It should be the most defining characteristic of who we are. But if you're anything like me, that's not the case for you. If you're anything like me, you are much more defined by your educational background, what you do at work, your relational status, your family of origin, maybe your gender, ethnicity, political affiliation. You're defined by all these other things and member of the people of God is like way down in like fourth or fifth place. Now, why is that? If it's such a significant thing, why are we not defined by that as much as we should be? Well, I think it's because we don't know what it means. We don't have a, like, if I said to you, like, hey, what does it mean to be a part of the people of God? You'd probably be like, uh, right? Like, sometimes kids will ask you questions like that, and you're like, I'm not nearly as intelligent as I thought, right? Um, It's just like, what does it mean? What what characterizes the people of God? What what should I expect now that I'm a part of the people? What are the benefits of being in? What What are the costs of being in? What does it mean? Well, that is what we're going to learn today in Mark chapter 3, because Jesus is actually going to go through the process of starting to form the people of God. He's going to begin the process of forming the New Testament church, which is what we're a part of today. And by looking at this chapter, we're going to learn some things about the people of God. We're going to learn three things about the people of God, if you are a Christian, about you from this text in Mark chapter 3, okay? Look at verse 7 with me. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed upon him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Okay, so to understand what's happening in the rest of chapter 3, you have to know what happened before this, okay? So remember two weeks ago, Jesus had this big battle with the Pharisees, and at the end of it, the Pharisees started to plot how they could kill Jesus. Okay, well, here's what you need to understand about the book of Mark. This, 7 through 12, is a transition period, okay? This is the transition from Jesus' ministry with Israel, with the, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees. Now he is breaking with them. Okay, he is withdrawing from them. They want to kill him. So he is breaching with the Old Testament people of God, and he's going to start forming his New Testament people, the church. And so what we're going to see is we're going to see Jesus call leaders of the church. We're going to see opposition to the church. We're going to see some of the blessings of being a part of the church. But what you need to understand is 7 through 12 is the transition. Mark doesn't introduce a lot of new content, right? He's basically like, and Jesus kept doing all the same stuff that he was doing, right? Like he's still preaching. He's still teaching. He's healing people. The crowds are getting bigger. He's casting out demons. The one thing I want to point out from these verses is notice how diverse Jesus' followers are. 
right? If you, if you look at all those different regions that Mark mentioned, like, why is he saying all that? Well, he's making a point. Galilee was a blue-collar area, okay? It was, it was pretty uneducated, pretty blue-collar, kind of down-to-earth people. Um, Judea and Jerusalem were cosmopolitan. They were very educated, wealthy, influencers. That's where Jerusalem, the capital city, was. That's where the temple was located. And then Tyre and Sidon were Gentile cities. So that wasn't Jewish territory. That was up north, kind of where the, the Romans uh, had a lot of people. And so what Mark is doing is he's showing us that Jesus has always called a diverse people. You see, the New Testament church is a theologically oriented, not an ethnically oriented people. You tracking with me? Israel was an ethnically oriented people. You were in Israel because you were a descendant of Abraham. Right? But the church today is not ethnically or culturally oriented. The church today is theologically oriented. We are not united by a common culture, by a common ethnicity, by a common economic background, by common, common voting patterns. We are oriented and we are united around a common confession that Jesus is Lord, which is why today Christianity is by far the most diverse religion in the world. So roughly speaking, 20% of Christians in the world are in South America, 20% in North America, 20% in Europe, 20% in Africa, 20% in Asia. So sometimes you'll hear, he'll, you know, hear people say, oh, Christianity is like a white man's religion. It's just not factual. It's just not true. Christianity is by far the most diverse religion in the world, and it has always been that way, all the way back to when Jesus started calling his people. All right, so we're transitioning. No more Israel. Jesus is forming his New Testament people, which we are now a part of, and we're going to learn three things about it. Verse 13, Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder. Pretty cool nickname. Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. All right, here's the first thing we learn about God's people. Number one, God's people are called in and sent out. God's people are called in and sent out, which means if you are a Christian, you are called in and sent out. Just like Israel had 12 founding fathers, Jesus now appoints 12 apostles to be the founders of his New Testament people. You see the parallels that are happening? Jesus is stiff-arming the Pharisees, he's breaking with them, and he's starting his own people. And these apostles hold a very special place in church history. God endowed them, Jesus endowed them with unique spiritual authority that none of us have today. There are no modern-day apostles like this, capital A, apostles. But Jesus gave them special, unique authority to do two things. Number one, to preserve the gospel. Number two, to propagate the gospel. To preserve the gospel and to propagate the gospel. These men either wrote or authorized every single book in your New Testament. And that's good news because that means you're not just getting someone's opinion about Jesus. You are getting the words of Jesus authorized by the special agents of Jesus. These were the men that got to say, yes, that is the gospel, and no, that is not the gospel. So when you read the Bible, you're not just getting people's opinions, you're getting Jesus' truth. Sometimes they'll turn on the History Channel, and they'll be like, we've discovered a new gospel. It's the gospel of Zacchaeus, right? And then they'll, like, they'll bring in some professor that looks really wise, and you're like, where's that university? I've never heard of that, right? And they'll go on and on about how like, this shows that there were all these different tangents in early Christianity. It's just not true. There were random gospels, and the apostles were like, yeah, that's not legit, like that one where the cross comes off the ground and starts floating around and visiting people, that's not what happened, right? Like they just struck it down. That's why we can have confidence in our New Testament because of the apostolicity, that's a, fa that's a, a fancy theological word, the apostolicity of the letters, okay? So there are no apostles like this anymore today. But their calling is still a general pattern for disciples today. We don't have the same spiritual authority, but we still have the same general calling. I want to point out three things that we learn about our lives from what Jesus called them to. Letter A, to follow Jesus, we must separate from the world. To follow Jesus, we must separate from the world. Notice how in the text it says Jesus went up on the mountain. 
What scholars think that means is that he went into central Galilee, which was referred to as the hill country. What did he do? Jesus separated himself from the crowd. He separated himself from the world. And then he called his disciples to do the same. He called his disciples out of the world to start following him. You see, there is always a setting apart in following Jesus. There's always a sanctification. That word sanctification actually means to be set apart, to be different. To become a disciple, you have to step out of the world and into Jesus's path. You must break from following the world to start following Christ. Because here's the truth. We are all being discipled by something. The question is simply by who or by what. We're all being formed by something. We are always being discipled. The question is simply by who or by what. To be a disciple of Jesus means to cease being a disciple of our culture. It means to cease being a disciple of your workplace. It means to cease being a disciple of your family, perhaps. It means to cease being a disciple of 21st century American values about romance or sexuality or emotions or feelings. It means to cease being a disciple of your university. It means to cease being a disciple of whatever else wants to influence you that is not Jesus. To step off of the broad road that leads to destruction and to step onto the narrow way that leads to life. That is what is required to become a follower of Jesus. Paul makes the same point. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That word conformed refers to a mold. You know what a mold is? A mold is something that you try to squeeze material into so that it'll be shaped in a certain way. Paul is saying, look, the world is trying to mold you. The world is trying to conform you to its values and its beliefs and its behaviors. And if you're not careful, it's going to. If you are not actively fighting against the world, you are being formed by the world. Because here's what happens. Every single day, we get formed by the world. You know how most of it happens? Through your phone. Right? What do you get every morning? You get a daily update, don't you? It's like on your email. Or on your, what is that? Oh, here's truth for the day. Here's how you should view things. And then you go to work, and then about 11 o'clock, you get bored, so you get on social media, right? I'm not that what any of you would do that, right? But you get on social media. What's happening? It's like, here, view the world this way. This is what matters. This is what matters. This is what matters. Celebrate this thing and do this thing. And then you go home at night, and what do you do? Well, you turn on Netflix, and then Netflix is like, here's all of our values in story form with really impressive music behind it and really beautiful people. What's happening? The world is discipling you all the time. Paul's saying, no, you've got to reject that. The world wants to conform you into its mold, and Paul is saying you have to reject being conformed to its mold, and instead you have to be transformed into what image? Into the image of Christ. You have to be transformed into the image of Christ. To follow Jesus, we must separate from the world. Well, how do we, how do we become like Jesus? How do we resist the world and instead become like him? Well, that's letter B. To become like Jesus, we must be with Jesus. To become like Jesus, we must be with Jesus. Do you notice in the text it says, Jesus appointed these men to be with him? What that meant is that he invited them to spend a lot of time with him. To have informal and formal time with Jesus for him to become their leader, their teacher, their friend. Why? So that they could become like him. So that they could understand what he believed, what he, what he was passionate about. How he responded in different situations. So that they could be transformed into his image and so that they could faithfully propagate his message. Have you ever noticed how um, people who are married for a long time start to look like one another? Have you ever noticed this? Uh, the other day, I literally realized Meredith and I were wearing the same outfit. It's very uncomfortable. I was like, we both had on like gray jogger sweatpants and a purple center church shirt. And I was like, this is weird. All right, let's watch TV, you know, whatever. Um, have you ever noticed this happens with pet owners too? I was in my neighborhood the other day and I saw this guy and it was really interesting, you know? It's, uh, you're like, Peyton Manning lives in your neighborhood? And some of you are like, who's Peyton Manning? Um, Right? No, it's just true. The people we spend the most time with, we become like, right? We just all know this uh, intuitively, right? Because, man, we're understanding what they're passionate about. We're understanding what grieves them. We're understanding what they love. Well, the same is true with Jesus. If we want to become like Jesus, we have to spend time with Jesus, right? There's no, there's no other way to do it. There's not like, 
I can preach a really good sermon and you'll become like Jesus. Like, it doesn't work that way. It is a process of being set apart, of sanctification, of being molded into the image of Jesus. So how do you do this practically? One way is daily Bible reading, okay? Carving out 20, 20 minutes in the, the beginning of your day, man, to, to read the word, to pray, to, to understand Jesus' words. And you're like, I don't know how to do that. We'd love to help you learn. Okay, we've all got to start somewhere. We've got Bible reading plans on our website. Talk to any of our missional community leaders. They would love to help you learn how to have, we call it time alone with God, TOG. It's not a great acronym, but it's simple, okay? TOG, okay? Time alone with God. Come up with a better one. Tell me, I'll start using it. Okay, time alone with God. The second way is just weekly being in church. You're doing a great job right now because in church, you're with the people of God. You're sitting under the word of God. The spirit of God is present. We're worshiping. We're being formed into the image of Christ. Okay, but here's, here's I, I want to be really honest with you. You're probably not doing nearly enough right now to become like Jesus. Okay, let me get in your business a little bit. If your attempts at discipleship include listening to a podcast and praying on the way to work, you are done for. Okay? Do you want to know why? Because the world is way, way, way better at it than you are. I mean, I just told you, right? It's like you're getting input all the time on your phone all the time on your phone, from our culture, in music, in movies, in shows, on billboards, everywhere. So if our response is a podcast once a week and a couple of minutes of prayer in my commute, not going to work. We've got to get serious about spending time with Jesus or we're going to limp along spiritually anemic and there's no other excuse for it than you're not spending time with him. Here's the good news. The Lord of the universe wants to spend time with you. That's pretty awesome, right? And even if you've never done this, if you're like, I haven't spent time with Jesus ever, he's like, that's okay. Let's start today. We want to help you do that, but I got to be honest with you, like it's going to take a lot more to become like Jesus than we often think. It's like not enough to go to like an awesome conference like when you were in college. Like that's not going to do it, right? It was like awesome for the day, and now we got to like get into the pattern of becoming like Jesus, of becoming like him. It's why Paul uses athlete uh, illustrations to talk about the Christian life. Because what do athletes have to do? They have to work on their craft every single day. Conditioning, form work, they're always working on it. We just see them play the game, but the reason they're able to play as well as they are is because they've been working on it all the time. All right, so to be like Jesus, we, or to become like Jesus, we have to be with Jesus. Here's the next thing that we learn. Um, to follow Jesus, we must go like Jesus. To follow Jesus, we must go like Jesus. The text says that Jesus appointed them to be with him and that he might send them out to preach the gospel and cast out demons. Here's the thing. Jesus is the ultimate missionary. Jesus is the ultimate missionary. It's such a significant aspect of his identity that if we aren't engaged in mission, we aren't very much like Jesus. Okay, it is such a significant part of his identity that if we aren't engaged in, G, uh, in mission, we aren't very much like Jesus. It would be like me saying, like, man, I'm a lot like LeBron James, except I'm bad at basketball. And you'd be like, so tell me how you're like LeBron James. And I'd be like, well, we're both humans, uh, we're both men, and we're both in our 30s. And you'd be like, well, yeah, but there is such a huge thing that you're missing here that you're not, you, LeBron James is not what comes to mind when you preach, Josh. Like, it's just, you know, it's not Muggsy Bogues, maybe. I don't know, like, it's just not coming to mind. Why? Because I'm so, there's a whole huge aspect of who he is that I'm not like. Well, in the same way, if, if we're saying like, hey, we're, we're disciples of Jesus, man, missionary work, a heart for lost people, a desire to go and share the gospel has got to be part of who we are. Otherwise, we're really not a lot like him. And notice that Jesus sent out his disciples to preach the gospel in word and to demonstrate the gospel in deed, right? To, to proclaim, to herald with words, and then to demonstrate with, the, with casting out demons. And all the way throughout the scriptures, all the way back to Jesus, it is all, the church has always been called to proclaim the gospel in word and to demonstrate the gospel in deed. But for 2,000 years, we've been trying to pull those two things apart. And it's like, well, we're a word church, but not a deed church. Or we're a deed church, but not a word church. And it's like, no, we're supposed to be a Jesus church, which means we do both, okay? We proclaim the gospel, 
Like Forrest said last week, it is necessary that we use words. No one will ever get saved by you giving them a bottle of water. I'm sorry, unless on the wrapper it has the gospel on it, okay? That's the only way that'll work, right? You have to use words. The gospel is a message. I've heard it said like this. Imagine you were watching a news anchor on mute, and the news anchor was like really engaged. You know, you'd be like, I have no idea what that person is saying. Like, you might know that they really care about what they're talking about, but you don't know the news. What do you need? You need words, right? You need unmute. What are you saying? Same thing with the gospel. People never get saved through a bottle of water. They only get saved through hearing and responding to the words. But the demonstration of the gospel in our community validates the message, right? Word without deed is bare. We need the deeds of the gospel to say, hey, we are a people of God that's being transformed and we're living out the will of God in our community. And this week, we have an awesome opportunity for you to do that. It's on this t-shirt, okay? It's called Serve the City. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, we're going to have opportunities for you to sign up to volunteer to serve all across our community, right? It's going to be a palpable way for you to demonstrate the gospel in deed. All right, so here's what we've done. We've developed the partnerships, man, we've set up the volunteer thing. We've given you a really simple URL. Here's what we've done. We've taken a golf ball, and we've, it's clean, and it's a really nice golf ball, and we've put it on the tee, and we've handed you a driver, and here's what you need to do. Swing the club, okay? Like, I need you to swing the club. How do you swing the club? Go to the website, centerseva.com backslash, actually forward slash STC. You can sign up for a slot, or we're even going to have laptops out in the lobby so that if you haven't yet, you've been intending to, you can sign up to serve, okay? We want to be a church in our community that boldly proclaims the gospel in word, but also lovingly demonstrates the gospel in deed, and serve the city is an opportunity for us to do that, okay? So if you are part of the people of God, one of the things we learned from this text is that you are called in and you are sent out. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 20, then Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has indeed risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house, think Satan, and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Here's the second thing that we learn about the people of God. Number two, God's people should expect opposition. God's people should expect opposition. So um, this is kind of a sober point in the message. This, is, this goes under the category of healthy expectations. If you decide to follow Jesus, or if you are following Jesus right now, and you expect everyone to cheer for you, you are going to be really, really disappointed, and you probably aren't going to make it long. The reality is that all the way back to the ministry of Jesus, in every generation, there have always been people who have joined the people of God, who have repented and believed, who have been added to the people of God, there's been a group of people who don't care one way or the other, and there's always been a large group of people who has hated the people of God, who has opposed the people of God, who have oppressed and persecuted the people of God. Just look through church history. It has always been that way. And so I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to think when you face opposition or marginalization or ostracization by your family or at work or something, that something weird is happening to you. No, something, something is happening to you that has happened to people as long as there has been a church. And what we see in this text is that Jesus is opposed by two groups of people that are two groups of people that will likely oppose us today. Here's the first one, letter A, family. Family. The first group of people that opposed Jesus was his family. Fun fact, Jesus was the oldest of seven children. How about that? Conversion van, you know, Mary's driving the van around Jerusalem. Um, 
He had four brothers and at least two sisters. Thank you, Chris. Four brothers and at least two sisters. Could have had more. And they lived in Nazareth, which was a town about 15 miles or so from Capernaum. And they hear what's going on. And man, they come to forcibly seize Jesus. Why? They think he's crazy. Here's what, let me translate into modern terms. Ready? He's taking this religion thing too seriously. Like he is out of his mind. He really needs to mellow out. He is a fanatic. And so they show up to try to forcibly take Jesus home. The truth is, you might face the same thing. What I found is that most parents are fine with their kids being Christian as long as that doesn't conflict with 21st century American values. But as soon as you following Jesus conflicts with you pursuing career advancement or you pursuing your sexual desires or you pursuing financial security or heaven forbid, you pursuing personal comfort and safety, all of a sudden your parents are gonna say you're taking this too seriously. You're a fanatic. What if you joined a cult? You just have to understand that when you get serious about following Jesus, it is highly likely that members of your family, maybe people that you really care about, will not understand and will criticize you for it. And it'll usually start out as concern, and then it will harden into criticism. Hey, hey, rein it in. You don't, have to, you don't have to be that serious. You certainly don't have to go on a mission trip. You definitely don't have to give. You definitely don't have to be in a group. You don't even have to go to church that often. Like Christmas and Easter, maybe a couple of times, like it'll be fine. That's what everybody else does. If you are serious about New Testament Christianity, you will probably look very strange in your family. We had 37 adults who moved with us from Raleigh, uh, North Carolina to plant Center Church. Uh, it's, it's why we are here today. And a lot of them were young professionals who were leaving behind better career opportunities in Raleigh-Durham to come and plant the gospel here in Charlottesville. And their parents had a really hard time understanding that. Because their parents were like, there are lots of good churches in Raleigh. Why don't you just stay here and get that better job? And, and all the young professionals were like, that's the point. There are plenty of good churches here in Raleigh. There are not nearly enough good churches in Charlottesville. We want to go there so that people who are far from God can hear the gospel, repent, believe, and be saved from hell, and be given an eternal inheritance. And praise God, that has happened. We've baptized over 40 people in three years. Why? Because that group of people moved up here. But their parents didn't understand. And their parents thought, you were taking this way too seriously, and you're mellow out when you get older, and why are you doing that? And then sometimes I would meet those parents. And it was very awkward, because they'd be like, so you're the guy. <laughs> I'd be like, I guess, you know. Uh, you laugh, because you're here, that happened. Um, anyway, so I'm just going to be really honest with you. Like, if you get serious about following Christ, your family might not understand, they might criticize you. And this is what breaks my heart. Do you know who's the worst about this? Nominal Christian families. They're the worst about it. Because what they are trying to teach their kids is it's okay to not be serious about God dying for you. It's okay to not be serious about God dying for you. It's okay to treat it like an afterthought and go to church like three times a year, never give, never serve, don't look anything like Jesus, look exactly like culture. I'm sure that's fine. I'm sure that's what the Bible teaches. Heaven forbid that we would be those parents one day. Heaven forbid that we would be those parents one day that say to our kids, don't be so serious about this Jesus thing. Here's what I pray for our parents. I pray that when your daughter comes up to you and says, Dad, I feel God is calling me to take the gospel to a dangerous place in Southeast Asia where people have never heard the name of Christ, you will say, praise the Lord, I'm gonna weep, I'm gonna miss you, but I'd rather you die and see you in heaven than die and you go to hell. Because what could you want for your kids more than they love Jesus so much and they're so full of the Spirit and they believe the Bible that they're like, I wanna go be a missionary. And yet it breaks my heart how many Christian families, college students want to do that, young professionals want to do that, and they get cold water dumped on their head. No, 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 just get a job. You can give to the nations. No, 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 just get a job. You know, just stay here at home. It's so much easier and more comfortable. Following Jesus is not comfortable. It is worth it, but it's not comfortable. 
So if you get serious about following him, just know you will probably face opposition from your family just like Jesus did. The second group that, that Jesus faced opposition from will we'll face it as well. It's letter B, cultural elites. Cultural elites. You see on verse 22, it says, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem. So these weren't your everyday Pharisees, okay? These were the cultural elites of the days. They were based in Jerusalem, the capital city, around the temple. They were in all the channels of power, okay? And here's what we need to understand. We live in a progressive culture, so we don't think of conservative people as being elites. It was a religious culture back then. So if you climbed the religious ladder, you were the cultural influencer. And so you were the one who determined what kind of behavior was acceptable and not acceptable. And so what happens is the scribes come and they hear Jesus' teaching and they watch his ministry. And what do they do? They say, you're possessed by Satan. They pass the judgment on him. They looked at his ministry and they said, not acceptable, possessed by Satan, we reject you. Friends, the same thing happens today. Every culture has cultural elites who pass judgment on what is acceptable and not acceptable. Ours just aren't called scribes. They're called editors at the New York Times. They're called professors in the Ivy League. They're called NBA players. They're called musicians. They're called social media influencers. It's the same thing. It is people in culture who are deciding what values and beliefs and behaviors are acceptable and which are not. And don't miss this. The scribes did not just say to Jesus, you're wrong. They said, you're unethical. Do you see that? They didn't just say like, oh, you're so wrong. This is poor interpretation. They said, you're possessed by Satan. Jesus, you are unethical, you are bigoted, and you are hateful. That's what they were saying. And maybe you're starting to see why this is relevant, right? Increasingly today, if you believe what the Bible teaches, no matter how nuanced and kind and gracious and winsome you are, there will be a lot of people that will say, you are the problem. You're the problem. You're hateful. You're bigoted. You're backwards. You're on the wrong side of history. And when that happens, I just want to encourage you, in that moment, you're a lot like Jesus. Because that same charge was leveled against Jesus by the same kind of people 2,000 years ago. So what do we do? What do we do when that happens? What do we do when we get smeared online? What do we do when we get the raised eyebrow at work? What do we do when we get criticized by our family because we won't go to that same-sex marriage? What do we do? Well, we should do the same thing that Jesus did. First, Jesus just pointed out the inconsistency of their position anyway. He was like, so you're telling me that there's a civil war going on in the kingdom of darkness. That's what you're saying. And that like, I'm like some sort of sub-demon who is trying to overthrow Satan. And like, that's why I'm casting out demons and healing people. It's like everybody's kind of chuckling at this point in the crowd. It's like, no, that doesn't make any sense. What did he, he just, he showed the inconsistency of their position. As a church, we need to learn how to graciously and winsomely do the same thing. Most of the positions of our culture are not consistent. They're not philosophically consistent. They adhere to one thing, affirm one thing over here, and then affirm another thing over here that are totally contradictory to one another. And what we have to learn to do is winsomely just kind of point that out. And, you know, maybe that feels really overwhelming to you. A, a great place to start, there's a, a woman named Rebecca McLaughlin who wrote a great book called Confronting Christianity. Okay, Confronting Christianity. She basically goes through 12 of the kind of the biggest accusations that Western culture has against Christians and just sort of deals with them. So if you're looking for a place to start, Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin, she is an excellent example of how to do this well. And I want to encourage you with something, because I know it can be discouraging to think about opposition, especially if it's coming from like people you love, your family, that you, you, know, you want to be able to have a safe space with them, and maybe you can't, or like, man, it can feel like big bad culture is like on you at work and online and everywhere. Don't miss what Jesus said in verse 27. Do you see what he said? He said, hey, hey guys, here's actually what's reasonable. 
I'm able to cast out demons. I'm able to heal sickness. I'm able to forgive people of their sins. I'm able to break bondage because I have bound Satan because I'm stronger than he is. I've gone into his house. I've tied him up, and now I'm plundering his stuff. Guys, Jesus is enthroned. Jesus is coming back. There is, there is no battle that is being waged right now to see who wins, Jesus or Satan. Jesus wins. And you are on the winning side. So even if it feels like you're just hanging on in this world, take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. Jesus said in John 13 to his disciples, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So if you're going to be part of the people of God, you just need to expect opposition from the world, but be encouraged. You don't walk through it alone. You walk through it with your brothers and sisters, and you walk through it with the power and the authority and the presence of Christ in your midst. Look at verse 28 with me. Jesus says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they, the scribes, were saying he has an unclean spirit. So this is um, one of Jesus' most solemn warnings and one of his most incredible promises right next to each other. Okay, what's the promise? The promise is, no matter how bad you've sinned, if you repent and believe, you can be forgiven. No matter what you've done, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God through Christ Jesus if you will repent and believe. If you will respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, no matter who you are, what you've done, Jesus will cleanse you and make you new. Praise God for that. Here's the warning. If you refuse the conviction of the Holy Spirit, there is no forgiveness for you. There is no second way up the mountain to God. There is no Christianity that doesn't include repentance. Jesus is saying, if you refuse to respond to the work of the Holy Spirit, you will not be forgiven. Now, some people um, read this and worry that they've committed this sin. Anybody ever been that? You're like, oh, did I like accidentally commit this in college? You know, like, am I like, am I like a lost cause? Uh, and that's it's a misunderstanding of, of what this is saying. You actually don't know if someone has committed this sin until they die. Because at any moment, if you want to repent, you can. Right now, in this moment. I think a great example of this is the thief on the cross next to Jesus. I mean, that man had lived an entire life of wickedness. He had resisted the Holy Spirit his entire life. And in his final hours, repented and believed in Jesus. And Jesus said, truly today you will be with me in paradise. So the question to ask is not, have I committed this sin? The question to ask is, am I repenting? If you are repenting, you have not committed this sin. If you've lived a life without repentance, refusing to humble yourself under the word of God, then maybe you should be concerned. You should repent. But at any moment, Jesus' arms are wide because his grace is sufficient for whatever sin has characterized your life, for whatever hard-heartedness you have lived in, Jesus is able to soften it if you will respond to the work of his spirit. Another way to put that is the only thing that can keep you from experiencing the grace of God is your unwillingness to ask for it. The only thing that can keep you from experiencing the grace of God is your unwillingness to ask for it. All right, we're going to learn one more thing from this text. Look at verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came back, so they're back, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my mother and sister and brother. Number three, third thing we will learn, God's people are God's family. God's people are God's family. So Jesus' biological family is back. They get to the house where Jesus is teaching. It's so crowded they can't get in, so they send in a messenger. And everybody would have assumed that Jesus would stop teaching and go up to talk to them because family was the absolute highest value in their culture. And yet Jesus does the most remarkable thing, would have shocked everyone. 
he looks around at the, the men and women that are sitting around him, man, commoners, not educated people, just kind of run-of-the-mill people, and he says, whoever does the will of my father, that's my family. That is my family. Whoever has been born again through repentance and faith, and as a result is increasingly doing the will of God in their life, that is my family. Which means today, if you're a Christian, you have God as your father and Jesus as your elder brother. When Jesus looks at you, he says, I'm committed to you. I care about you. I'm in it with you. I love you. I will weep with you. I will rejoice with you. I will walk with you even when you reject me. Even when you sin. Even when you harden your heart. Even when you go through sins of apathy. I will persist. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Why? Because you're family. Isn't that what defines family? That no matter what happens, you're in it with one another? No matter what happens, you can't get rid of them? Isn't that what makes broken families so painful? Because that's what family's supposed to be. So when dad walks out, you know it's wrong. You know it's not how it's supposed to be. If you are in Christ, you are God's family. Think about the privilege that that is. Think about the comfort that that is. Think about how that should change how you encounter struggles in your life and how you go into your week. I'm told that the royal British family is a big deal. I don't know. I, you know maybe you think they are. I get all my info, information from the aisle at Food Line as I check out. Um, but, but here's the deal. If you're born into the, the British royal family, you have access to influence and power and prestige and experiences that no one else has access to. Nobody. And none of us can get into the royal family. It's just, no, you're either born into it or you're not. The only way that you get into the royal family, if you're not born into it, is if one of the members of the royal family looks on you and sets their love upon you and marries you. And then you, commoner, get brought into all the privileges of the British royal family. Think about Meghan Merkel, right? Before Harry set his love upon her, she was just a B-list actress from Suits, right? You know it's true. <laughs> but now what is she? She is a global icon. I mean, she is known and followed by millions and millions of people. She has access to influence and power and wealth and experiences that she never had as an actress. Why? Because she has been brought into the family. Now, the royal family is very dysfunctional. But imagine, imagine a perfect royal family, a divine royal family, who is characterized by justice and righteousness and wisdom and strength and power, who reigned over not one nation, but all the nations, who reigned not just for one age, but for every age. And imagine that someone from that royal family came and looked at you and set their love upon you and said, I would like you to join my family. And I would like you to have all of the access and all the influence and all the power and all the riches of heaven. I would like you to have that. I would like you to sit at the table with my heavenly father. How would that change you? If you really believed that, how would that change how you went into your week? How would that change how you looked at your struggles? How would that change how you thought about your life? It would change it radically. Friends, in Christ, that has happened. In Christ, that has happened. If you are in Christ, you are part of the family of God, not mostly, not partly, but entirely. And here's the amazing thing. Think about it. Why did Meghan Merkel get in? Because she's beautiful, and she's talented, and she's charming. You and I are not that. There is nothing in us, there is nothing in us that made God be like, I want him in my family. We have nothing that we could offer God that he doesn't already possess. So why did he set his love upon us? Because he chose to. Because it is his gracious character to pour out love and affection and forgiveness and new life on wicked sinners. 
And the reason that Jesus could look around that room at a bunch of sinful Galileans, and the reason that I can look around this room at a bunch of sinful Americans and say, if you'll repent, believe, you get to be in the family, the reason that's possible is because Jesus was cast out of the family for you. The reason you can be brought in is because he was sent out. Jesus was condemned so that you could be justified. Jesus suffered so that you could be spared. Jesus was hung upon a cross. He was raised up to death so that you could be raised up to new life. Jesus became a stranger so that you could be called a son of God. And that is where the power comes from. That is where the power comes from to do the will of God. That is where the power comes from to go out with the message of the gospel even when you face opposition. That is where the power comes from to persist to the end knowing that at incredible cost, Jesus made you a family member. The God who hung the stars in the sky hung on a wooden cross so that you could be called a child of God. Father, we just thank you for your grace. And we're so grateful that we get to be a part of your people. We just ask that you'd help us to appreciate that gift, to rejoice in that gift, and to be transformed by the good news of the gospel, that no matter who we are or what we've done, if we repent and believe because of the sufficiency of your work on the cross, we can be forgiven. Lord, I pray for every person listening to me right now that you'd give them a special understanding, special experience of the goodness of family, and that they'd be moved by that to trust you more. We love you. We pray this in Christ's name.